0: Hey Jess, should I read, think, and grow rich?
1: Only if you want to vibrate yourself right into the plane of boredom and insanity. Welcome to Fleece Fest, where we discuss hope being a pretty terrible strategy to grow your wealth, even for cryptors. To Dan, how was your honeymoon? Welcome back.
0: Uh, New Zealand is amazing, uh, 10 out of 10, considering emigrating. Bora Bora is beautiful, but probably an 8 out of 10. It's probably just as good as any other tropical paradise. But anyway, uh, Jess, let me be honest, I've never read Think and Grow Rich, and I'm not sure that I
1: want to. (laughs) I'm Jessica, and I'm not sure that anybody's actually read Think and Grow Rich.
0: Okay, well, so all I've actually ever really heard of this book, as best I understand it, is that it's one of the original books in like the manifesting wealth genre. The, you know, if you believe you deserve it, you do. And if you don't think you deserve it, you don't. You know, sort of an eat, pray, love for the financially illiterate. Am, am I on the right track?
1: Yeah, you are not too far off. <laughs> Although now I need to write a book in which I go eating my way through Italy and come back skinnier and richer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a good point.
1: Yeah. Um, All right. Well, let's talk about the book real quick. So uh, Think and Grow Rich was published in 1937. It was written by Napoleon Hill and his wife at the time, Rosa Lee Beeland. The premise of the book is that if you want something badly enough, namely wealth, but not necessarily, then it could be yours if you just try hard enough.
0: So basically, we have him to thank for the bullshit, like uh, Tony Robbins and The Secret. Jess, bring me my TARDIS. I think we need to go back and stop this book from ever being published. (laughs)
1: <laughs> You've got it all, though, probably more than you realize. So we'll break this down uh, into two different sections here, a brief overview of the book itself and then a history of the author's griftiness.
0: Ooh, hell yeah. I love a good grift story. Whoop, whoop.
1: Oh. All right. So let's talk about the book itself. So Hill claims to have found the steps to attain and grow wealth by interviewing dozens and dozens of rich and very successful people.
0: That is my favorite author lie, the I talked anonymously to successful people and I am wealth and so can you.
1: Yep. So he outlined 13 different steps to riches in total, which I'm going to run through really quickly here. So one, desire to want it. Two, faith in yourself or self-confidence. Three, auto-suggestion, a.k.a. remind yourself of what you want often. Uh, Four, gain specialized knowledge. Five, imagination to visualize your goal. Six, it was a lot. Uh, Six, organized planning. Uh, Seven, making the decision to go after your goal. I think we're at eight. Eight, keep persisting at your goal.
0: Uh, Jess, aren't these all variations of the same thing? I mean, none of this so far seems too off base. I I suppose, though, it's the original Yes, You Can book. So to some extent, I I don't know that I can fault it for being incredibly cliche and repetitive.
1: Yeah, I I agree. It's definitely repetitive. Uh, I'm not sure how much all of this was groundbreaking when the book came out, uh, having not been around in 1939. But uh, on their face, these aren't all bad ideas, right? Right. So let's just keep going though. Uh, so what is that? Ten, I think. Have uh-huh. a master nine. Okay, <laughs> have a mastermind group that encourages you.
0: Okay, I mean that's that's good advice at least.
1: Yep. Uh, next, the mystery of sex transmutation.
0: Uh, I'm sorry, what?
1: <laughs> and then the last three: uh, the subconscious mind, the brain, and the sixth sense, aka using your gut for business decisions.
0: Jess, I'm sorry, I don't think you heard me. The mystery of what?
1: We'll get back to that one in a minute. Uh, But despite being overly repetitive, uh, which is honestly a shared trait with every self-help book that I've ever read, these steps aren't really half bad.
0: Uh, I'm sorry, Jess, you're telling me there's a step called the mystery of sex transmutation, and it's not half bad.
1: (laughs) I swear, we're going to get there, Dan, I promise. Uh, Yeah, so each chapter is mostly a bunch of anecdotes about famous rich people and what can only be described as a healthy overuse of all caps and exclamation points, like think Donald Trump style before he got banned off Twitter. It's very instructional, I'll give it that. Each chapter has very definite steps and outlines to follow. There's just a lot of it. I, I mean, I really struggled reading this book. It felt like it was just word salad after word salad after word salad. There's a lot of weird ass shit too. Like, Hill constantly talks about vibrations and energy and transmutation. I'm convinced that this is one of those books that lots of people say they've read, but they actually just get in the notes. And I, I really think it's important to note that this book came out towards the tail end of the Great Depression. Hill equates this to a great leveling event, which, of course, it was. Uh, but you know, now everybody's got the opportunity to become rich and wealthy. And so he's really selling, what do you call it, Dan Hopium? <laughs>
0: Yeah, Uh, you know, because the ultra wealthy didn't hoard some of their wealth during this time and and the rich didn't some at least some of the rich didn't stay rich and the poor definitely didn't just stay poor. But uh, Jess, I hate to keep beating a dead horse here. You cannot dangle the mystery of sex transmutation in front of us and not explain that it's it's just too absurd. (laughs)
1: I'm still not actually sure what transmutation is, like, I'm going to be honest with you, it's just a bunch, it's just words, Uh, but the chapter itself is kind of wild, in a nutshell, it basically says that sex is one of the most powerful forces, and if it's harnessed correctly, it can make a man very powerful, Uh, and that's what he calls that sex transmutation, (laughs) uh he also goes off on achieving higher planes of thought using creativity or something i don't know he just goes down some really wild avenues i'm really not sure where he's going with it um and it's just honestly a bunch of nonsense to me it does go without saying this is a pretty sexist chapter overall uh but by the time i got to this part of the book my brain was too fried to even give a shit Uh, To give everyone a taste, Anne, why don't you read this blurb from the next chapter, which is chapter 12?
0: The subconscious mind consists of a field of consciousness in which every impulse of thought that reaches the objective mind through any of the five senses is classified and recorded, and from which thoughts may be recalled or withdrawn as letters may be taken from a filing cabinet. It receives and files sense impressions or thoughts, regardless of their nature. You may voluntarily plant in your subconscious mind any plan, thought, or purpose which you desire to translate into its physical or monetary equivalent. The subconscious acts first on the dominating desires, which have been mixed with emotional feeling, such as faith. Uh, You really weren't kidding about word salad. That took so much willpower to not just mishmash.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And note all of the big things in in all caps, right? Voluntarily plant your subconscious. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I'm a serial book finisher, right? Like I cannot start a book and not finish it, but I could not for the life of me get through this entirety of the book. But let's now get to the real fun part here. Napoleon Hill, the man, the myth, the legend, emphasis on myth. Uh, and I first want to give a shout out here to Matt Novak, who wrote an excellent piece on Napoleon Hill uh, for Gizmodo, uh, which we'll link to in the show notes. Dan, I'd like you to read this blurb from the preface of Think and Grow Rich.
0: Oh, God, more word salad. All right. The secret was brought to my attention when Andrew Carnegie, more than a quarter century ago... The canny, lovable old Scotsman carelessly tossed it into my mind when I was but a boy. Then he sat back in his chair with a merry twinkle in his eyes and watched carefully to see if I had brains enough to understand the full significance of what he had said to me. Okay. Andrew Carnegie is not a charming, lovable old Scotsman. Andrew Carnegie is a monster who literally hired mercenaries to gun down his employees when they dared to attempt to unionize. And I know people love to bring up uh, how to make friends and influence people and performing at Carnegie Hall is like a major accomplishment for artists. But it has to be said that describing Andrew Carnegie like he's fucking Santa Claus as a font of folksy financial wisdom is utterly insane. This would be like citing to Donald Trump today as a font of ethical business acumen and tax advice.
1: Yeah, it's a cute story, right? Uh, yeah, except for one very critical component. There is no evidence that Hill ever even met Carnegie. It's likely he never even met any of the people he claims to have profiled and Think and Grow Rich at all. I'm going to be honest, Dan, calling him a grifter here is going to be an understatement. Let's get into it. This sounds awful. Please say more. <laughs> yeah, so as I mentioned, no records of him exist Meeting any of the famous people that he interviewed other than like a small photo of Thomas Edison where like he's handing off an award and Edison looks like he's ready to just jump out of the room. So, uh, of course, you know, there could have been written evidence of this, but Hill claims that they were all destroyed in a fire. All of his notes from meeting Carnegie and all the research that he did for this book. So, uh, uh,
0: of course, all, all life accomplishments are destroyed in fires naturally.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe floods and pools. Um, So (laughs) you can cut that out. That was a Donald Trump reference. Sorry. Um, (laughs) It stays. (sighs) He also inserts himself like very weirdly into various historical events. Uh, For example, being in the room when Woodrow Wilson negotiated armistice, um, or also helping uh, FDR develop the New Deal, and he also says that he came up with the phrase "We have nothing to fear but fear itself." Again, zero proof that he worked with either administration, but you know, okay. Detail. So he, he's
0: he's financial self-actualization like money Forrest Gump, where he's just like magically <laughs> in every historic event that happened during his <laughs> lifetime.
1: Yeah, basically. Uh, So his first major business venture, a lumber company, turned out to be a scam. He bought lumber on credit, sold it for cash, then dashed on the credit bills. Warrants went out for his arrest, which conveniently ties to when he starts using his middle name, Napoleon, instead of his first name, which was actually Oliver. He spent most of 1908 on the run from authorities, which notably is the same year that he supposedly had all these super deep conversations with Andrew Carnegie. So, you know, it's kind of hard to talk to billionaires when you're on the run, but whatever. So then he starts a sham car college in D.C., which folds. Uh, He then goes to Chicago, where he hangs his shingle as a lawyer, despite having never gone to law school. Apparently, that also doesn't work uh, because he eventually starts another college in Chicago, claiming to teach self-confidence and the principles of success. This also quickly folds after several students lay fraud accusations against it. The school seems to have been a scam all around. Uh, He sells shares of the school and bases the share price on a bunk valuation of $100,000, which I think it was worth like $1,400. That gets him charged with violating the state's Blue Sky laws.
0: Can I just say this guy must have been an inspiration for Frank Abney, big Naily Jr., like the, the Catch Me If You Can guy. Like he's pretending to be a lawyer, but didn't go to law school. He's like selling stuff that doesn't exist. I'm sure there were some bad checks in there, too. Like what what an icon. What, a, what an inspiration. Uh, but yeah, you know, selling, selling fake shares of a barely existent school for a fake valuation. Uh, you know, but that, that really seems to be the entire premise here, uh, you know, although I will say it does seem like he was probably very well qualified to teach classes on self-confidence.
1: It's got something going for him. Yeah, this is a thing that we're a theme we're going to see repeat uh, throughout his story, which is basically drum up some money from investors and then take the money and run. Getting in trouble with the law for him, though, seems to have lit very little impact. He continues his pattern, starting various schools, magazines, and courses, uh, seeking investors for them, and then absconding with the cash. He also has various schemes, convincing people to donate money to charity, and naturally that money just ends up in his pockets. He finally starts to make money on his first book, Law of Success, but once the Great Depression starts, he's back in the poorhouse. His third wife divorces him, and he meets his fourth wife, Rosalie, while he's hosting a seminar. They get married within 48 hours um that's like the quickest uh <laughs> engagement dan can dan can probably uh agree that that's probably the right way to do things it's a little fast <laughs> even for me it's a little fast a little fast um yeah basically he was at the seminar and was like i'm looking for love and she shut up and was like i'm ready anyway uh they decide to work on think and grow rich together uh with rosalie editing it into something that's like somewhat readable basically
0: Just, just the few sections you've had me read make me question it when you say that she edited it into something reasonable. Right. It's like, I don't,
1: I don't know how it, like it could be worse, but I guess it was. Um, anyway, this book is published and it becomes a huge success. Again, this is coming out at the end of the great depression and it's really, you know, providing people this escape porn of like, Hey, like all I have to do is think my way into wealth. Right. There's to me, there's it's pretty obvious why this became a bestseller. Um, but yeah, so then the couple starts really living a flashy lifestyle, and the book royalties just can't cover all that that spending that they're doing. Right? Even touring can't pick it up. So, let me guess, they start another school scam. Nope. They announce a, a totally new marketing stunt. They are planning to adopt 15 children and give them, in my air quotes, a decent upbringing.
0: Uh, I'm going to bet that worked out about as well as Bruce Wayne's family trip to a theater.
1: <laughs> yeah, not great, as you might expect. Uh, they seem to have only been able to adopt two kids. One of them was weirdly their housekeeper's daughter. I'm not sure about that. Uh, and then from there, they get wrapped up into a cult that also has some really weird ideas about adopting children. The cult, which was called the Master Metaphysicians, ooh, that's a mouthful, were also proponents of the thought movement. Um, In 1939, the cult announces that it will adopt a five-month-old baby and raise her to become immortal through the power of vegetarianism and positive thoughts.
0: Well, that clearly worked out. She's still with us now, right?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, I guess we don't really know for sure. Uh, Nobody really knows what happened to her. The cult eventually folded after the cult leader stole some money from his followers. I'm going to guess no, but for now, I guess it will remain a mystery. Hill was named as the baby's godfather, though, uh, and later the cult leader Schaefer said he got the idea of scamming his followers directly from Napoleon Hill. <sighs> anyway, so fun, fun stuff with our buddy Napoleon just kind of making his way around. Napoleon Hill eventually spits from, splits from Rosalie, remarries, and starts touring and scamming again. None of them really amount to much, and towards the end of his life, he starts a nonprofit called the Napoleon Hill Foundation. It's still around, and it would not shock you to learn that it sells lots of leadership courses. Hill dies in 1970 with not much money to speak of.
0: You know, the title of the book is almost fortuitously ironic. Uh, I mean, really, this guy spent his entire life grifting, somehow manages to squeak out a bestseller during a strange time in American society, and then still manages to die broke and alone. I mean, how is it that this book is still percolating almost 100 years later? Like, why is this still on venture capitalists' top 10 reading list?
1: I don't know. This guy, like, made up so much stuff and and scammed so many people. I really didn't even get into all of the different scams that he pulled. Again, I really recommend reading that article uh, by Matt Novak. But I I will end on, there's a chapter in the book that lays out all the reasons why someone can fail, and when applied retrospectively to Hill's life, there are Freaking hilarious. Uh, things like wrong selection of a mate in marriage. Uh, yeah, so Hill was married at least five times. Uh, another one was the habit habit of indiscriminate spending. He like would go and earn money in different places and then just immediately blow it all. Um, so maybe not a person to listen to on that one. And then of course, you know, intentional dishonesty. I guess it's okay if he does it, but just not anybody else. Uh, Hill even writes... Sooner or later, his deeds will catch up with him, and he will pay by loss of reputation and perhaps even loss of liberty.
0: Well, if you want to read a book of complete nonsense, which I think I'm going to skip, you too should perhaps skip this book and just get the audio version of The Secret. Oh, oh, The Secret, oh. (laughs) LeaseFests is produced by Daniel Yerker and Jessica Gettle. Daniel Yerker is an investment advisor representative of My Wealth Planners, a registered investment advisor in Colorado, and Jessica Gettle is an investment advisor representative of Pavilion Financial Planning, a registered investment advisor in Pennsylvania. Our theme song is Dr. Yes by Yari. Nothing discussed in this podcast is investment advice or any other form of advice, and the podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. If you make investments or other financial decisions because of the podcast, frankly, you weren't listening.